0: I wish that more people would spend time learning how to curate stories that actually serve them, rather than stories that we create that aren't necessarily our own experiences, but experiences we're told that we're having, and that we're allowed to explore what that means so that we can decide who we want to be.
1: This is So What Are You. I don't
2: have just one culture.
1: So even if you say you're born here, where are you actually from? not even speaking
2: Pato, I'm gonna know what that is. How do I recover? Make the food. Why aren't you curious?
3: Why doesn't anyone want to know?
1: A six part series that explores our complex relationships to our cultural identities. I'm Melissa Houghton. The voice you heard at the start of this episode belongs to Naduk. You might remember her from the previous episode. And if you haven't listened to that yet, I suggest doing so as it gives a lot of context for what we're gonna talk about in this episode. So today we're talking about narratives. What happens when you're no longer in control of the jokes that you started? And what happens when the things that you've always believed to be true no longer are? How do we reconcile these things? Also, just a heads up, there is a bit of spicy language in this episode, so don't say I didn't warn you.
2: Never call a Jamaican parent when you get in trouble. Mommy, police just pulled me over, I'ma think my license is suspended. spinning Know how Boy, come my phone, Hello?
1: That was a clip from Caribbean American comedian Major Hype whose clips are widely shared across social media and who has developed a huge following based on his portrayal of what it's like to live as a first generation person with parents from the Caribbean. There's a lot of catharsis in seeing the things that you might have been ashamed of or thought only were specific to your family brought out into the public. And it's a great reminder that you're not alone. And sometimes laughter is the best way to come to terms with things that were either traumatic or just kind of confusing growing up. I mean, things like having to leave class because your parents thought Harry Potter was witchcraft or having to defrost some type of protein and then not doing it and then waiting for your parents to come home and trying to pretend like you did defrost the meat. There's a huge comfort in knowing that these experiences are common for a number of people. But there's also another side to the story of these narratives. I can remember joking so many occasions with friends about the fact that so many Jamaican restaurants run out of food very early, but The thing is, while this is rooted in a lot of truth, when these jokes started to happen with people who weren't Jamaican or of Caribbean descent, I couldn't help but feel a certain aspect of discomfort. It's like when someone makes fun of your sibling. You know, it's fine when you're the one to do it because you know them and you love them, but when someone outside the family comes in and tries to make the same jokes, something about it just doesn't hit the same. I've been thinking a lot about how this plays into the stories that we continue to tell about our cultures, the way we relate to them, and also the traditions, whether positive or otherwise, that we can consciously uphold or make the choice to distance ourselves from. I feel like my family was very traditional growing up, which also kind of sheltered me. So I would probably like maybe change that in my traditions, like a little bit less traditional than like my family members are or my upbringing was. This is my very good friend, Matt, who you've heard from earlier in the series. We've been friends since the seventh grade where we starred in a middle school production of The Wiz Together, and I'm pretty sure both of us can still remember some of the choreography and the songs today. We share a lot of parallels. Both parents of Jamaican descent and both of our moms were born in the UK, but obviously there are a lot of places where we differ. In contrast to Matt, my upbringing was a lot less traditional. So for me as an adult, I'm kind of drawn to finding those traditions more myself because I don't feel as though I was exposed to them as much growing up. But for Matt, he feels like some of that tradition that he experienced was a bit sheltering for him. And right now he's ready to redefine what his relationship to his culture looks like in a way that feels real to him
0: when I talk also about stories that are applied to us it's also the stories of our parents that we don't always associate with and the identities that we take on especially as immigrant children where they're saying oh no no but you know you're Sri Lankan it's like well I've never lived in Sri Lanka what makes me Sri Lankan
1: for a lot of people with parents or guardians born abroad, so much of the knowledge of home is rooted in their experiences and relations, which is not necessarily ours. As a result, the views that we have our culture are heavily influenced by what they saw and how they relate to it. But also there's a difference in a parent who might go home every year versus a parent who left their home country and hasn't been back in 20 years whether you're someone who has been back to your country of origin or was born there or someone who was born here and maybe has not visited frequently or at all how does that influence how we view our culture and how do we differ those experiences and beliefs from those of our parents my friend Manit, who you briefly heard from earlier in this series, puts that into perspective with a really interesting story.
0: Shout out to my friends, Sancheen and Vince. They recently curated a film and it was called Holes and How to Fill Them. And one of the films that they were showing was called Aisha. It was a woman telling the story of her mother and how she was like a dancer and it was going throughout time and eventually it ends saying like, oh, then I don't know what happened. And it was like a really good depiction about what we know about our parents and the stories we forward them are like incomplete and they're really not always ours to tell. And like, why do we always so find it necessary to share those?
1: Because many of us are of cultures that have been directly impacted by colonialism, so much of what we talk about now is influenced by our experiences as shaped by that. And there's nothing that we can do about it in the sense that we can't go back and change the history. But sometimes I am left wondering about how much space we have to look within ourselves in a way that's not influenced by outside forces. It's so hard not to think about what our communities in general and our chosen and blood families have had to give up for generations, ancestral lands, language, even family. A lot of our elders didn't even have the space to necessarily think like this because the demands of daily life were very, very hard. And so is it a privilege to be able to start reflecting on concepts like this? I asked my friend Zoe as much.
3: I don't think it's a privilege to like ruminate on some like lost sense of self because like a lot of what we're talking about is about like loss right like people like have to move from their home countries they have to like preserve they have to shed some kind of skin so I don't know if it is a privilege it's kind of depressing all of this like ruminating on internalizing is what's gonna happen like it seems kind of a natural progression as humans for us to kind of like philosophize on like what this like mass migration means and them thing I don't know
1: and what happens when loss not only comes from systemic violence inflicted on your community from the outside but also from within the community how do you begin to embrace parts of yourself that you never thought could coexist Figuring this out has been a big part of Zoe's journey.
3: I didn't say this in my bio, but I'm queer. But I never acted on it because it was almost as though like i didn't realize that it was an option to act on it just because like i didn't see other queer caribbean women in the world like the only idea of queer women even existing was like on the l word which i didn't watch and on like the ellen show which i didn't watch so yeah i like had to slowly unpack what it meant for me to embody the spaces of black and queer and a Western indian immigrant to canada
1: Although my cousin Zimbel was born here like Zoe they struggled with how to reconcile their queerness with their caribbean roots as well
2: Ooh, loss. Oh gosh. Let's say first I'm queer. And so I thought that because of my I was queer that like the whole culture was lost to me for some time because word is on the street, Jamaica's homophobic, Guyana's homophobic, you can get jail time for being gay there that was something that I felt for a while I had to reject because I was like okay well you know I thought my queerness had to go into like this white area which really sucked because it was just like you know it meant like not having a bum and like (laughs) it also meant like thick thighs weren't gonna save lives that was like kind of alienating for me at first and then meeting other queer folks and trans folks who were from Jamaica I I learned so much like I had a a friend who I remember one time we were out uh, like I went to like this retreat for you know trans and, and queer folk of color and like one time we were out in the streets and someone yelled faggot at us and then one of the guys I was with was like and I'm sexy too and I was just like oh my god it was such a moment where it was just like no this doesn't have to be a moment of loss this is a moment of actually reinvention this is a moment of actually reclaiming is the moment where you know we yes we touch loss right and like yes it's very intimate but whatever part of its lostness avails itself to us we have to grab it and and own it in some way and recreate from there
1: honestly i will never get tired of hearing zimbal's contagious laugh and their words and their humor are an important reminder that, honestly, folks from marginalized communities always find a way to survive and thrive despite constant barriers. And in a lot of cases, humor is such an important part of how communities cope. And even I know in my own family, humor is such an integral part of how we relate to one another, and also how we manage to get through some things. Because you know what they say, if you don't laugh, you will cry. And sometimes you got to do one and then the other or both at the same time but ultimately humor can be the gift that keeps on giving for me, this is a key component in evolving how we think about and speak to our experiences and our cultural identities
0: This goes back to being, like, joy-driven and, like, humor being a sign of really good resilience and, like, that's how you move forward. I feel like using humor is a way of rewriting narratives for yourself as well. Listen, jokes just hit
3: differently when they're in patois or any creole or in any accent. They hit differently. Hello. Nothing made me laugh from the bottom of my chest so much. Like, when I am scrolling through Jamaican Twitter at night. Eh? Okay? Hey lady, come here, come here. Hey girl, don't touch me now, Mom, me. I am I you to tell you something.
1: Snake you can't talk? Of course, I can't talk. You have to tell Adam this? Hold on,
3: hold on, hold on before you tell him. I want one, one, one plop you in the tree, you know. I can't pick it coming out. And it ripe, it both will drop. You don't know want it? No, I eat God's Me I don't eat. You go and make people tell you how to live your life. Alright, let me try a little piece. I feel like social media can be a real source of joy too, you know. For me as a diasporic person, and by diasporic I don't mean African diasporic, I mean like somebody that moved from the place that they're from or was born, the major hypes on Jamaican Twitters of the world really make me feel connected to home, right? Because those are the kind of memes that I can definitely... Sent to my friends at home and we'd be like yo, that's not like my cousin or whatever it really caters to diasporic, diasporic people's like sense of nostalgia for their homes that they, you know, had to leave for whatever reason, cause it's not like we're up here cause we want to, want to, like we had to leave. Yeah, I think um a lot of social media that has to do with Caribbean culture is about being funny I think that's like really positive cause Caribbean people are very fucking funny we're hysterical <laughs>
1: Zoe's perspective serves as a good reminder, sometimes it's not about other people, it's about how comedy can help us reconnect to ourselves. For her, comedy is a lifeline to home and that's all that matters. We can't control what other people choose to do, but we can choose to find life in the things that are for us and by us. For Mini, while some comedy serves this purpose, not all creators are focused on an uplifting purpose, in her opinion, particularly as it relates to South Asian communities. School game? good. Friends?
0: It's good. Teachers? Also good. They. Marks?
1: Marks? Marks? good getting 80s acha 80 80? te baki 20%
0: I think, like, we've entered, like, the Russell Peters era of representation when it comes to, like, talking about, say, our immigrant parents. If we go back to just a few years ago, I'm thinking within my own South Asian community, like, Jess Rain came out with these, like, videos talking about his, like, immigrant parents, and he would weave English and Punjabi out of it, and so the humor was dedicated for the particular diaspora community, but now it's, like, kind of been mass marketed. You see it with Superwoman, you see it with a lot of other different South Asian artists who poke fun at their parents, like... Like they don't know how to use technology, they always want to give you jaw or like they're forcing you to get married. It plays on old tropes that now white people can tap into, they think it's funny, and I feel like we're recreating one-dimensional characters. I kind of wonder what the purpose of creating a pan-brown identity is if it's not politicized, and it's like, then who is it for? Like, why are we flattening ourselves? you know that comedian hannah i forgot her last name she would have a netflix special yes yeah. and then so she tells that story about a joke about being at a bus stop do you know this I know. okay so she was at a bus stop and some guy comes up to her and it's like oh are you hitting on my girlfriend and then he's like saying some derogatory terms towards her and it was a joke And then when she ends it, she's like, you know, I need to stop making myself smaller because actually what happened, I cut the joke short. I ended up getting like the shit kicked out of me. I feel like it kind of touches on what we're talking about. It's just like when we talk about Wish to Share stories, we like cut it short just before the part where it goes off the cliff, where it would be like, you know, actually there's real pain here. And it's just like, we're doing it because we don't think other people can hear our stories. And it's this internalized feeling of like, are we burdens?
1: Not all humour is created equal. While there is a lot more space for humour that's nuanced with regards to understanding our various relationships to our diasporic identities, and the generational differences that can exist within that, I can speak from experience in saying sometimes humour can just be a defence mechanism. It's an attempt at empowerment, hoping that beating the other person to the punchline takes away its ability to wound. But. The often unintended consequence is empowering the very same people you were hoping to seek protection from. The idea that, if they're saying it about themselves, it gives me free reign to say the same, or worse. This is B Kwame again, we heard from her earlier in the series talking about her thoughts as it relates to Caribbean identity in Canada and how moving forward requires a lot of collective action and evolution of our mindsets. Here's what she thinks about the need to demand respect. when people say oh well i'll put my flaws out there and make fun of myself before anybody else can make fun of me i feel we do that a lot where it's like i don't think this person's going to take this seriously so let me make it a joke first and let them laugh so it's a positive experience because we're laughing but then you walk away like well they didn't take that seriously at all because you didn't take it seriously right Mm -hmm. and i can understand depending on what it is and where you are it can be a hard thing to kind of navigate that but We have to be that change within ourselves too and question why do we laugh a certain way or why do we accept certain things and not challenge or not demand better from ourselves first so that we can do the same externally, right? Like B. Manit sees the value in re-examining why we tell the stories we do and seeing that humor can be more than a tool for self-deprecation.
0: I'm trying to think like how I... Got to the space, but it's like therapy was a big part. Also, rewriting how I tell my stories, why I share them, was a big portion. It's like, yeah, why am I making these jokes about my family? What am I trying to communicate? But then also, like looking back on like when I was telling these humorous stories, it was like also me trying to cherish the good that I had in my childhood and wanting to hold on to that. And then like being able to acknowledge, like you know what, that's a big fucking deal. I think it's extremely challenging to take difficult and traumatic experiences and then have them not haunt you forever.
1: For Zimbal, it's drawing on the strength of our familial matriarchs to remind us of how we can make it through today, even when it seems less than possible.
2: A lot of uh, Black mothers are like... um... Our grandmother, uh, you and I, um, was a nurse who came over here and a lot of Caribbean moms came here as nurses and then brought their kids once they had enough funds. That story is very powerful for me because I'm just like to think of like the willpower to look outside and to see a different life and to manifest that is courageous, it's brave, it's against the odds. So that's something that I'm like, okay, well, as a queer individual who, you know, is worried about returning to Jamaica and the kind of reception I've received, even though I've heard it's changed a lot and people are much more out and open they just had their, what, second pride this year. You know, that's something now that I'm imagining for myself and being like, okay, like maybe this return is possible.
1: And before we end this episode, I want to leave you with some important words from Monique.
0: I'm in also a place right now in my life where I'm learning certain narratives don't have to be shared. I'm learning things that used to be big whole chapters in my life are now footnotes. And so that's a really interesting process where it's just like before I felt stifled and I needed to make sure like I was joking around. And it was like, yeah, I used to be so sad. (laughs) But it's just like now, it, I don't know, it doesn't feel necessary to share that and I don't feel smaller because of it.
1: Thanks, Manit. On the next and final episode of this series, we finally get to the good stuff. Food. What are the foods that make us feel connected to our culture? Which preparations do you wish you knew more about? We'll dive into this meaty topic or meat-free if you're vegan. So What Are You was produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Melissa Houghton, with music from Fugue, Ryan Little, Silent Partner, Katza, Himalaya, and Dural. If you like this series, please leave a review, share, and subscribe. For more information about this series and to see links to some of the things I mentioned, you can visit my website, which is melissahawton.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-H-A-U-G-H-T-O-N ncom If you're enjoying the series, please leave a review and tell your homies. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa H-A-U-T-E. Thanks for listening.